All right, welcome back to our teaching series um, here on our theology day uh, at City Church. My name is Femi Oshini, I'm lead pastor of City Church. And we have gone through two sessions of this series, this four-part series called The Kingdom of God. Now, in the first session, we trace the concept of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And in the second session, we trace the concept of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. We saw how God's people were to live under God's law mediated through God's person, God's king, uh, in the presence of God, um, in the place of God, at the place of God. Now, we traced that whole theme and saw how it was developing and eventually how it was accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ, but how it will be consummated at the end of history. If you need to uh, catch up, in fact, I'll say, if you've not watched any of those, please go back and watch them before we then you delve into all of this because it's built upon the foundation of those ones okay so now let's delve into today's own you know christians um, and particularly a very uh, a particular set of christians and maybe some of the, the ones watching here we um we have so, certain good qualities right um, but that sometimes those qualities uh, they become our own undoing for instance the quality of studying the bible bears a lot of good fruit Trying to go deep in the Bible bears a lot of good fruit, but sometimes it does yield some undesirable consequences. For instance, we like to search for things where there isn't uh, 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 um, any real thing there. Like in a bit to study things deeply, we start looking for things where there is nothing there. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you, someone says, "What is how? What's the difference between the kingdom of God and?" the kingdom of heaven. What's the difference? Well, there are legion of answers. You can go online and you see people writing so many different articles. But I want to help you by comparing two sets of passages. Why don't you compare, as will be on the screen, Matthew 4, 17 and Mark 1, 15. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. From the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What do you spot? Okay, how about this one? Matthew 5, 3 and Luke 6, 20. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What substantive difference can you spot there? Nothing. Exactly. Because there is no substantive difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Actually, the only difference there is some is, is, is not substantive. It is a difference of emphasis. What I mean by that is this. With the kingdom of God, you are emphasizing the ruler of that kingdom, God, not man. But the kingdom of heaven, you are referencing where that rule comes from, heaven, not earth. You see, when Jesus was on earth, many people forced him, they went to force him to become a king on earth. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers will fight. In other words, Jesus was trying to say, don't limit, limit my kingdom to this earth. If my throne is on this earth, then the scope of my sovereignty will be in some parcel of the earth, at best, just throughout the earth. But if it is in heaven, 
then he would rule over all things. Psalm, 113, uh, Psalm 103, 19 says this, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and therefore his kingdom rules over all. And therefore, the sovereignty of Jesus' rulership is over all things. That's why Colossians 1, 18 and 20 says, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, speaking about his resurrection, so that in everything he may have supremacy. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Now we learned in the last session, as we think about the gospel, that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has already begun through the incarnation, through the death, resurrection, and now the ascension and coronation of God's son, the kingdom has started. But the kingdom needs to advance. Because even though it has started, not all things have come under its sphere of rulership. Because it's one thing to be enthroned, but are all things actively under your domain? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, We do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. We understand that. So that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. But the verse that, be, that comes before that, verse 8, says this, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So there is still an advancement of the kingdom of God that needs to happen. This is when, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. The first petition that they were to make had to do with the invasion of God's kingdom. When you pray, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom has begun, but it is meant to invade the earth and spread. So how does it do that? Well, it's about warfare. Let me explain very briefly. You see, we are talking about the battle of kingdoms. Remember, we established the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We said well, they are in opposition to one another. And we then said that Jesus' kingdom has now been inaugurated. He defeated Satan. But that doesn't mean that the satanic kingdom has been totally extinguished. Don't forget that God is a warrior. In fact, if you remember when Moses defeated Pharaoh in Egypt, he goes on and tells us that Jehovah is a warrior. And we see the same thing when David defeated, that's Exodus 15.3, by the way, when David defeated Goliath, the warfare was not just a warfare between him and Goliath. It wasn't just even a warfare between Israel and um, the Philistines. It was between the God of Israel and the supposed God of the Philistines. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, David said to the Philistines, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. Verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And so you see this battle of the kingdoms. But then Jesus says something in Matthew 11, which really needs to make us think. Speaking about the imprisonment of John the Baptist, later he says, you know people that are of the kingdom, 
actually, they will always suffer opposition, but the kingdom of God will still advance nonetheless. Listen to how he says it in Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, another rendering, and violent, violent people have been reading it. It's forcefully advancing, but violent people have been reading it. In other words, Satan is a defeated foe, but he's still an active foe. In other words, when it comes to eternity, Satan is like a snake who has fangs, but the fangs have the venom totally removed. So the kingdom of God still must advance. And we are still engaging in spiritual warfare. So that when we declare, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it is nothing more or nothing less than a declaration of spiritual war. Now, what does that then mean? How do we fight? Well, we have two enemies, usually in this. We have the external enemies and the internal enemy. In the same way that the Israelites had the external enemy, all the nations around them, and they could have crumbled because of that, in the same way they had internal enemies. They couldn't, because of the internal enemies, live under the rule of God, and that is why they are exiled. Now, in trying to fight these enemies, and, um, and we'll look at the external enemies today, one of the things we must not forget is what is at the center of warfare. We've spoken about it last time. It is the gospel. And I say center because when we are going to talk about the different external, uh, we're, we're talking about the external enemies, you'll find that we're going to have different spheres, like a concentric circle. At the center is what we use to fight. It is always around the gospel. But then the different spheres, like a concentric circle, will show you how um, um, each sphere is directly, uh, well, the, the closer the, uh, the circle to the gospel, the more directly it is affected by the gospel. So, at the center is the gospel. What's the gospel? Remember we said it is what God has done, the good news of what God has done in sending, the, um, in making uh, the, the crucified, sorry, what God has done in Jesus Christ, graciously done in Jesus Christ, and what is that? That the incarnate and crucified Savior has now become the resurrected Lord and the impending judge of the world. So, how do we fight the battle externally? I said, there are four levels, as you can see. Today we're just going to talk, and this session we're just going to talk about levels one to three. So, let's start. Level one. How does a country legally grow today? How does a country grow legally? Now, one way that is illegal that is frowned upon, like when Russia a few uh, years ago annexed Crimea from uh, uh, Ukraine, most people frowned at it. It was called a land grab. That's not legal by international law. But there's only one way a country, or two ways that a country grows. One is by birth. Have, uh, uh, well, birth of its citizens, and the second way is by immigration, right? But when a child is born, let's say in the UK, or some immigrants come into the UK, guess what? They don't establish the UK. They come and meet the UK. At best, the UK is growing, but being born and immigration does not establish the United Kingdom. The growth of the kingdom is either through birth or through migration exercise. 
and it's the same thing with the kingdom of God. Don't forget, it is Jesus that establishes it. Well, God establishes through Jesus and through what the Holy Spirit does. But Jesus then says, using the same metaphors of birth and migration, Jesus in John 3, 3 and 5 says, except someone is born again, except someone is born of water and spirit, they cannot see or enter into the kingdom. Do you see the birth? But Paul also says another in Colossians 1, verse 12 to 14, said, thanks to the Father, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the domain, the dominion of darkness, the kingdominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Do you see? Rescued us and brought us in, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, people are brought into the kingdom through the forgiveness of their sins, a new status, and receiving new life by the Holy Spirit. That is how people come. When the, and this happens when the, end, when the gospel message is shared. Jesus gives an illustration about a, a sower that went to sow some seeds in Matthew chapter 13. And he said he scattered the seed and the seed... Uh, some in, in three different parts, the seed didn't bear fruit, but in, one of, in another part it did. But the point he was trying to make here was that when the, when the seed, uh, the way the seed actually germinated, when he gave the interpretation, listen to what he said, he called the seed something. He said, then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. That's verse 3 of chapter 13. Go to verse 18. What is the seed? Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom. Do you see? The message about the kingdom is the seed. When anyone hears it, when they believe it, if they believe it, then they receive the forgiveness of, the, of their sins and receive the Holy Spirit. That's why in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus announced in his ministry, he said that the kingdom, the, uh, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So at this level, we are talking about kingdom propagation. Through what? The message. The message. When we share the message of the kingdom through preaching and evangelizing. It's sad that in our day, many people would say something like this. What's the use of sharing the gospel when people's needs are not being met? In other words, we neglect evangelizing. We neglect sharing because we don't think it is that important. But what could be more important than people's eternal state? Kingdom propagation is the most direct way we spread the gospel. Now, the second way we, uh, the second level um, of, of warfare is um, kingdom propagation, uh, kingdom preparation. In other words, it's preparation for the propagation of the gospel. So I'll give you some examples. Paul in Ephesians 6 verse 19, after speaking about the weapons of our warfare, right? So it's a warfare passage in, from verses 6 to 12 to 18. He then says this, Pray for me also, that whenever I speak, words may be given 
means so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Do you see? Paul is saying that I want to be able to preach the gospel fearlessly. Many of us are timid. Many of us find ourselves in awkward situations and so we scale back from preaching or evangelizing. Paul says, in order for you to propagate level one, you need to prepare. So prayer for yourself, prayer for others. Paul in Colossians 4 verse 3 says that, pray that I may have an open door for our message. So prayer is preparatory ground for the kingdom to proceed. There are other ones I can talk about. For instance, when 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 tells us that the, God, the, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, right? The truth, the gospel. In other words, if we have churches that are being planted where the gospel is being preached consistently, that's preparatory ground for propagation. Um, Peter also says that kingdom behavior, which I'll speak more about in the next session, but in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, he says this, that when we defend the gospel, we should do so with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against our good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. In other words, it makes the attacks of the enemy, it renders them useless. Some people do the enormous work of Bible translation so that people can understand the gospel in their own language. Don't forget that the apostles, the people in Jesus' time and even in the time of the New Testament, they only had the Old, the Old Testament, but they didn't understand the Old Testament in Hebrew. It was written in Greek. The Old Testament that they had was written in Greek. Why? Because that was the language they understood. The Old Testament had been translated to Greek so that people could understand. And in the same way, People are doing Bible translation work into different languages. It's not that the prayer, it's not that the church planting, or it's not that the Bible translation propagate the gospel. They make the preparatory ground for the propagation of the gospel. And that is also where kingdom generosity comes in. Paul says to the Philippians, he says this in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 15. Oh, in 19, we all know this. And may God, uh, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches in, of, uh, in, of his glory in Christ Jesus. And we apply that to so many different things, right? But we never really think about the immediate context. The immediate context was that when Paul left their region, Macedonia, to then go to Achaia, where the Corinthians were, only this church partnered with him in the gospel. Verse 15, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, oh, sorry, when I was setting out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Kingdom generosity, putting, you know, taking our material earnings and actually using it to support the work of church planting, to support the work of the ministry of your church, to support some missionaries that are doing Bible translation or what have you. These things are important at level two. You are engaging in warfare and you are enabling the spread of the kingdom through this. And then level three. Level three is the one that most of us are very used to, right? In level three, we are now talking about overt demonstrations of the power of the kingdom. That is, at this level, what is happening is these demonstrations serve to prove the superiority of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. Now, the purpose is to remove barriers, remove personal barriers that people may have that doesn't enable the gospel's presentation to come. 
Now, depending on your personality, your history, your church, or even the country that you live in, you tend towards either the extraordinary demonstrations or the ideological demonstrations. The extraordinary or the ideological. Let me explain. Extraordinary demonstrations. Now, Jesus engaged the demonic realm, right? There is a demonic realm. And sometimes the demonic realm tries to engage, it does engage with the physical realm in, a, in an immediate way, in an immediate sense, that is not mediated through something, right? So when we saw people that were demon, oppressed by demons, infested by demons, or possessed by demons, Jesus exorcised them. Remember that Matthew 12, 28 that we refer to, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then what happens? The kingdom of God has come upon you. If you check some of the history of Nigeria, of, 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 um, of uh, Christianity in Nigeria in the 20th century, it has a lot of mixed, um, uh, you, it, the, the, the result was mixed, but however, we cannot deny that we had certain revivals in the 30s, in the 50s, and in the 70s, some of these charismatic revivals, and one of the things that happened, even though there were lots of false things happening, that is what happens with a lot of revivals, and we should be at level two praying for revivals. This nation needs another revival of the gospel. But in those 30s, 50s, and 70s revivals, it wasn't just that the gospel was preached, but a lot of what was happening in level three was happening. There were miracles happening. There were healings that were happening. There was a lot of exorcism that was happening. And so when you were reaching people who weren't educated formally and people who were steeped in folk religion and some of the diabolical elements of that religion, Eventually, the only way they were going to hear the gospel presented to them is what we can colloquially call power past power. That is, one power had to be seen above the other. Through these extraordinary demonstrations, we were able to see that the power of the kingdom of light was superior to the power of the kingdom of darkness. Now, people are not saved by whether they are healed or not. Jesus healed 10 lepers. Nine of them did not come back to say thank you. And only the one that came back, they said he was made whole. That is, he was actually saved in his heart. People aren't saved by that. But the purpose of demonstration is to enable the saving message to come. Just like when in Acts chapter 2, um, the Holy Spirit came and people were speaking in tongues. People are not saved by hearing the, the works of God declared, uh, the wonderful works of God declared in their own languages. But he drew people, and then Peter then preached the gospel, and people asked, what shall we do? This is what the writer of Hebrew calls testing of the powers of the age, the coming age. That is the age when the kingdom will be consummated. There, there are no people that are sick. And so the power of that age enters into this age to bring forth healing. There, there are no demons or people oppressed by demons. So the power of that age, the Holy Spirit, who characterizes that age, who gives birth to that age, then brings that power to work today to prove the power of the kingdom above all other powers and to enable the gospel message. But you have ideological demonstrations. And a lot of people in the West, this is what they're engaging. So we have things like what you call apologetics, but it's really rational apologetics. You see, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5, Paul says about warfare, again, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Demolish. You see, we demolish arguments and pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take 
captive every thought. Do you see it? Arguments, knowledge, thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so there are a lot of anti-God philosophies out there. Um, a lot that's published through literature. A lot, actually, even in science. Not that, not science, not that science is anti-God, but a lot of people embed um, um, anti-theistic philosophies within their scientific inquiry. So, for instance, you have things like evolutionism, not evolution, but evolutionism that says because of some of the findings of the theory of evolution that there can be no God and that people are randomly, um, uh, uh, came into being through um, natural selection, which is basically a random thing like we accidentally came here. But also we see modern day uh, people um, saying we, we don't have stuff like gender or, or there's gender fluidity. Or, for instance, systemic teachings of oppression like racism, right? Systemic racism that says people of a particular color uh, of their skin are better than others. Or, you know, we've experienced colonialism here. What Paul is saying is that as we argue for the basis, the, the, against the, the, the um, intellectual foundations for such teachings, we're engaging in warfare, but at level three. The funny thing is that that doesn't... That's, the church against outside the church, and we can also talk about false religions as well. But that's the church battling intellectual arguments outside the church. But what about in the church? We are told that, listen, when people come up with false teaching, and they're false teachers teaching false teaching, the motivation is not just simply misunderstanding of stuff. I'm not talking about people who are genuinely caught up in errors, all right? I'm talking about false teachers who know to a large extent what they're doing. And it says, when we have that in the church, we're always warned about that. That actually is not just something innocuous. Listen to what 1 Timothy uh, 4 verse 1 and 1 John 4 3 says. 1 Timothy 1 says, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter time, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. Not something immediate, it's something mediated. It said, and things taught by demons. It makes people abandon the faith, because false teaching eventually hurts people. Or 1 John 4 verse 3 says, about cardinal teachings about Jesus Christ, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus, that is Jesus in the flesh, that Jesus is actually God, but also a human being, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Those were the false teaching that was coming at the time. It says it's diabolically motivated. Now, at this point, the devil is not immediately oppressing someone. Demons aren't immediately oppressing someone, but it's immediately, it's immediately actually oppressing people, deceiving them, making people abandon the faith and eventually get condemned. That is why the, um, the writer of Jude says that we should contend for the faith. And so even today, we have people speaking about legalism is by works that you eventually will be saved by God. That God balances your good deeds with your bad deeds. Or those who say cheap grace, that is, what you do does not matter in the grand scheme of things. But we say you are saved by faith, but not by works. But the faith that saves you produces works. Or you have the prosperity gospel. When you believe in Jesus Christ, guaranteed, if you apply the right principles, spiritual principles, guaranteed, you'll move from poverty into wealth. 
We have Christian rationalism that in many ways denies the supernatural then or the supernatural now. All of these call for us to contend for the faith. However, don't forget, when we defend the faith, 1 Peter 3 verse 15 tells us, even though we should be ready to present, to talk about uh, the reason for the hope in us, we need to do it with gentleness and with respect. In other words, contend for the faith, but do not be contentious. Please note that at this level, like in all the other levels, I must want this. We are not guaranteed success. We are not. This only happens when Jesus returns. That is, all these fears will be defeated. Sometimes we don't see them defeated. Other times we do. But the one thing we are sure of is someone believes the gospel, they will be saved. And that's why our level one must be most important, even as we engage all the other fears. So keep praying. Keep debating. Keep demonstrating the powers of God. Go out, pray for the sake. Go out, see God use you in miracles. But in all our fighting, let us do so with love, let us do so with gentleness, and let us do so with respect. Next time, we'll look at the fourth level and how we battle the internal enemy. I hope to see you then.